Hey, uh, we've got a, um, a real heart at the project here to uh, not just be a, a help to people who uh, come to church, but uh, to be a help to people uh, throughout culture. And uh, as has been mentioned this morning already, we think uh, one area that uh, culture really struggles in is actually handling conflict. And the truth is, it's not just cu- culture that struggles with it, it's all of us too, isn't it? Uh, conflict's very difficult. So we thought this would be a really sweet opportunity to, um, to do a little bit of work in it, just uh, three weeks of work um, in uh, trying to address it and helping us all uh, to do conflict better. So today's very much uh, a setup for uh, the next two Sundays and uh, we're going to get down to 10 tacks and give you some really good detailed information. I want to start this morning by uh, reading out a case study for you so we can get a little bit of a heads up about conflict. Rob could be very impatient with his wife and his children, especially at the end of a hard day. He would come home from work longing to get away from the pressures of daily life. He was going through a a tough transition at work and was more agitated than normal. Sleepless nights were also taking a toll. One evening, Rob was set on a calm evening without distractions. But as he came in the door, several of his children were arguing. The phone was ringing and his wife was noticeably irritated that he was late. That's when it unraveled. Rob began to yell at his children, I'm sick and tired of this mess and noise when I come home from work. All I ask for is a little peace and quiet. Anyone ever felt like that? Looking at his wife, Rob said, I'm out of here. I'll come back once I cool off and you get this place under control. Until then, I'm not speaking to you. In response, Rob's wife, Nina, grew cold and bitter as she reflected on the way she'd been treated. The way that Rob and uh, Nina are handling the conflict there is, is pretty typical uh, stylistically of the, of the two extremes, in a sense, uh, of the spectrum of how people handle conflict. And the way I like to put it is, uh, is like this. Some people would say some people are passive, some are aggressive in conflict situations. I like to say that some people are like turtles and some people are like cowboys. All right? And here's how it works. The cowboy is the person on the gun. All right? In a conflict situation, the person on sorry, the cowboy's on a horse, he's got a gun, and they're the person in the uh, situation, in the conflict situation, that think, well, I've got this gun, and it's full of ammo, so let's let it go, all right? What's the point in having it if I don't shoot a few people with it? And they tend to be the people who are pretty aggressive in the conflict situation. The turtle, on the other hand, is the one that's just kind of going, thunk, all right? Pull all the appendages in, pull the head in, let's hide in the shell and let's get some protection here. What's really interesting about this is typically, guess who marries who in a, uh, in a marriage relationship? Typically, turtles marry cowboys and cowboys marry turtles. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Excellent. So the cowboy's up on his horse and he's thinking... Uh, Man, I've got all this ammo, I might as well use it. And they're kind of thinking, I wonder why the turtle's so quiet right here. This is too easy. They just sit still on the floor. Let's just shoot them up. All right, this is like skeet shooting. Where did that ammo belt go? The turtle, on the other hand, is just going, man, this is just too scary. This is too big. This is too full on. I'm just, I've just got to hide. I've just got to click into self-protection. I'm not going to say that much. Kind of, the turtles are kind of thinking, why the heck are they so angry? What are they so upset about? And sometimes turtles will sit there. I think probably most of the time turtles will sit there and they'll just kind of be thinking, I wish they'd just be quiet and think about what they're saying a little bit more. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? 
And the interesting thing about the turtle is the turtle has a really sweet time inside the shell, right? Because the turtle starts getting this whole self-pity thing going on, all right? The bitterness kind of thing kicks in. And they've got, as opposed to the cowboy, I mean, the cowboy's kind of, you ask a cowboy what they said in a conflict situation 10 minutes later, they probably won't be able to remember it, right? But the, the turtle has got photographic memory, right? The turtle's got this tape rolling, all right? And the tape records everything that happened in the conversation. Well, a monologue, probably, if it's a turtle and a cowboy. They've just recorded all of it, right? Now, but they don't just record it all. The turtle goes through and plays it over and over and over and over and works out what's right and what's wrong about the way that the conflict situation got handled. The really scary thing is turtles do get on horses, all right? And when turtles get on horses, look out, all right? Does anyone know this? You push a turtle far enough for long enough, they are going to be like a suicide bomber, all right? They get on the horse and they just detonate everything, right? And it becomes a huge mess. And it usually takes two to three weeks to, to get to that point. And usually what happens, the turtle explodes and about 90% of the time the cowboy can't even remember what the issue was, all right? It's done, all right? But here's the thing. In, in that two weeks, two to three weeks, maybe a month, the turtle's literally written a doctoral thesis on the conversation, They've sorted out all the nuances, all the ins and outs, and they just kind of let fly at the cowboy. The weird thing about all of this is that both of them end up dead, all right? It's, it, it does become this suicide bomber kind of situation. The interesting thing about it is, um, when we look at that analogy, uh, is that sometimes cowboys actually don't think that they've got that much conflict going on, all right? Because they tend to sh shoot off at it. As soon as something kind of comes up, they shoot off at it. In their mind, it's all done, right? But the interesting thing is the turtle is kind of still sitting on it. And some of you probably, if you're a cowboy, and I'll uh, be honest about it, my wife and I are uh, a turtle and cowboy combination, all right? And it, it may be a big surprise to you, but it turns out I'm the poor turtle that gets shot. No, I'm kidding, all right? <laughs> Listen there, you're all going, oh! She's not in here, is she? No, she's, but she'll listen to this, all right? I'm on the record. But here's the thing. I, honestly, in a conflict situation, my instinct is to pull in and not to talk. I'm the one that will brood over it and get all bitter about it and sit on it for two to three weeks, and, and I bring it up, and she's, she's said her stuff, she's done her stuff, and she's moved on, all right? Um, and, and don't think uh, all of the descriptions I gave about cowboys, not all of those are true of my wife. I, I must say that, by the way, otherwise we'll have a cowboy and turtle thing happening when I get home. <laughs> See, the weird thing is you've got these two uh, extremes of the spectrum. You've got the cowboy on this side, you've got the turtle on this end. And the bottom line is the job is for all of us to actually move a little bit closer toward the centre. All right? I think the cowboy's pretty unhelpful sometimes because the cowboy thinks more about the truth and the information that, that needs to get out there, thinks less about the person. All right? The turtle, on the other hand, thinks a lot about the person, but they tend to think about themselves as the person and they get stuck kind of self-obsessing about everything that happened and how badly they'd been treated. So the bottom line is that we need to move back toward the centre because, and another reason is the turtles don't often get the truth out that needs to get out there. And the bottom line in any kind of conflict resolution is that you actually have to deal with the truth. And so I'm a converted turtle, all right? I think if you're going to be, listen to that cowboy down the front, woohoo, cowboy. If you're going to be on one side of centre, 
I'm of the opinion that you're probably best just to be on the cowboy side of centre because I think it's better to get the information out than to keep it hidden. Sometimes turtles marry turtles. That's interesting, <laughs> all right? Because you can go for extended periods of time where they don't talk to each other genuinely at a deep level. I remember uh, when I was young, I went out to my nan and pop's place and they've both passed away since, but I went out there and remember mum or dad saying to me, Nan and Pop haven't said a word to each other for three weeks. And they're, like, they're living in the same house. Like, they're, lit, they're just freezing each other out. That's kind of the turtle thing. I'm just going to smoke you out, right? But the thing is, a good turtle's never going to get smoked out, right? They're going, it's comfortable in here and I'm not getting shot up, all right? It's good. On the other hand, look out when you uh, have a cowboy marry a cowboy, all right? That's going to make for a pretty lively house, all right? And there's actually, uh, I'm, I'm a teacher at the school here, and there's actually a, a family at the school. I was talking to uh, one of the students about this, and they said, everyone in my family, they're all cowboys. The two parents and then the two kids. I'm just going, that, man, there's just bullet holes all through that house, probably, all right? And when you get into the details of how they're handling stuff in the house, it's very common for there to be, uh, and a, not abusive, but a bit of a push or a shove, lots of yelling in the house, very typical of a, um, of a cowboy situation. I had another student the other day actually come and see me and um, he actually had a big relational issue with uh, someone else in his grade. And you know what he said to me? Is he said this, he said, I don't have any conflict with this boy. Now the other boy, man, he had heaps of conflict. And this is kind of the other part of conflict. Conflict doesn't just depend on you and your awareness that... You, to actually know that you've got an issue. Because uh, we're working with relationships and there's a minimum of two people in every relationship, here's the bottom line. If someone else has got an issue with you, you've got conflict. Whether you agree with it, whether you acknowledge it, whether you think that it's actually true or not, uh, whether you're aware of it, you've still got conflict. In uh, news.com.au today, the uh, lead article this morning was this. The headline was, The Ripple Effect, How Homicide Hurts Us All. And here's the uh, little kind of uh, byline paragraph at the start of it. Almost every day someone in Australia is murdered, shattering families, fracturing friendships, ripping apart communities and ruin ruining livelihoods. For each life stolen, more than a dozen people need immediate and ongoing support. And they went through Daniel Morecambe and, uh, and a whole bunch of other quite... Uh, well-known homicides that have happened over the last few years. And it's, it's very sad, but murder, in a sense, is the ultimate I can't handle this conflict, isn't it? And the interesting thing about murder is that conflict is never, ever going to be dealt with. The conflict remains and it exists because the chance of actually dealing with it is done. You see, I was going to start this message and talk about the statistics about conflict, but we don't need to do that, do we? Because we all have it. We all, it's, it's with us. I mean, there's no perfect people here. I'm not perfect. None of you are perfect, as, as far as I can tell. Not that you look that weird, but we're, we're just not, are we? We're not, we're not perfect people, and we all have conflict. And the point of this series is not actually, and that, there'll be some nice um, techniques and, and, and strategies for you to handle conflict, but you know what? The name of this series is Inside Conflict because that's what we're trying to do is get inside it. I could teach you about turtles and cowboys and I could teach you about tricks and techniques, all right? But at the end of the day, what we need to do is we actually need to get down inside the conflict and find out what, what's actually going on so we, we deal with it at a deeper heart level. 
And one area I just want to look at really uh, quickly is uh, what are the belief systems or, or what are the, uh, the things that our culture um, takes on board as their beliefs about right and wrong uh, that influence the way that, culture, that uh, conflict actually gets handled. I'm going to float. This is a really quick kind of little uh, worldview study. The first one's this, naturalism. Naturalism commonly refers to the viewpoint that laws of nature operate in the universe and that nothing exists beyond the natural universe. This uh, famous guy called Carl Sagan said this. He, uh, he was basically ripping off uh, Christianity. He said, uh, the cosmos is all there is or was or ever will be. This is Carl Sagan. So what we're talking about here is uh, all of the people, and this gets promoted all the time on the TV, is the only thing that exists is physical. All right? You have to be able to measure it. Human beings came about through evolution. There isn't any God. There's no divine or intelligent influence that actually put this together. It's only what you can see and measure, in a sense, in a test tube. This is the, uh, the worldview or the belief system that's act that actually drives uh, a lot of atheism. They say there's no need for a creating God. Everything got here without him. But I want you to pause for a moment and think about this. What does this actually do for conflict? It's promoted all the time on TV. It's promoted on uh, all your nature shows, David Attenborough's uh, shows. Everyone's just assuming that this theory of evolution, and it is a theory, it's not a fact, this theory of evolution, everyone's assuming that that is exactly what happened. What does this do with conflict? Well, one of the key principles in evolution is this. And I think you're going to start to see where I'm going with this. Survival of the fittest. The survival of the fittest in evolution is the strong survive and the weak die out. You notice this? The central mechanism in evolution is all about conflict. That's what's supposed to happen. And I notice in my house, I've got four sons, I notice in my house if there's no controls and there's no rules or laws to actually keep things in place, Survival of the fittest happens in my house, all right? And I'm telling you, it doesn't help conflict, all right? Because there's only one guy who's the biggest, the strongest, and the fastest. And he'll get his way. This is one thing I often say at school here when students say, oh, we want freedom. And just go, who's the only one who's free in survival of the fittest? The strongest person. There's only one person free. No one else is free. Richard Dawkins says this, He's uh, one of the poster boys of uh, evolution and naturalism. Now, think conflict when you read this, right? This is very depressing. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom... No design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's pretty bankrupt when it comes to conflict, is it not? That's going to be really difficult to actually resolve conflict in that model. He's an atheist. He's a naturalist proponent. He ends up, he's probably one of the most famous atheists. He just wrote a, a, a book a few years ago called The God Delusion. I uh, was at a conference recently uh, with uh, Steve Biddulf. This was, uh, I think it was last year sometime, I was at this conference. Steve Biddulf is a uh, psychologist. 
and he's, uh, a very, uh, he's, he's a very famous one. His book, uh, Raising Boys, there, he's an Australian guy. His book, Raising Boys, is probably, uh, it would be the biggest seller of any kind of helping boys kind of book in Australia. I think they've sold over a million copies. Uh, and he goes around helping teachers in schools um, and parents to actually bring up their boys. I, mean, I think he's written one called Raising Girls as well. I think you may have read that one. But the interesting thing about Steve Biddulph when I was at this conference is I'm sitting there, there would have been about probably 120 of us there, and he's rolling out the whole day. He's saying this is how evolution is and this is why people act the way they are. So the whole day he's overlaying everything, that it, all the comments he's making, all the helps that he's giving about uh, what's wrong with boys and what's wrong with young people on top of evolution. So toward the end of the day, I thought, I've got to ask this guy a question, right? So I stuck my hand up. This is a true story. I stuck my hand up and I said, Steve, can you just help me to understand something? I said, down one end of the school corridor in the councillor's office, they're condemning and uh, vilifying bullying. And down the other end in the science room, they're promoting it. Can you tell me how that works? If the whole thing goes ahead by bullying in science, why are we then saying in the counselling room that you shouldn't bully? It seems to me if evolution is going to go forward, we ought to be encouraging bullying. I didn't say that last bit, did I? I just implied it. And you know what he answered? He said this to me. He said, well, you find that that view of evolution has largely been discredited. And I think, well, you better tell Richard Dawkins, <laughs> all right? Because he's still saying it. That's the first thing. The second thing he said was this. He said, uh, that's why we don't have claws anymore. And what he was implying is we have the intellect, we have the ability to actually talk things over with people and work it out. And I thought, that's right. We don't have claws, but now we've got laser-guided bombs, machine guns and rockets. It, I mean, we've sanitised conflict in a sense. We can do it from a distance so we don't have to look at the mess. That's really what's happened. And I hope you can see with me, this is a major, major problem. If you want to be faithfully committed to the evolutionary point of view, it's going to be very difficult for you to resolve conflict consistently. Another reason why it's going to be uh, really difficult is because evolution, if, you, if you're actually serious about it and you're going to follow it, and you take uh, Richard Dawkins's quote up there, which I'm going to show you again in a minute, if you take that seriously, what you actually end up with is uh, something called nihilism. Evolution actually leads to nihilism, right? Now, you know what nihilism is? Nihilism basically believes that everything's meaningless, except that statement, <laughs> all right? They don't, they don't say they accept that statement, but they stand up and they say, I believe everything's meaningless. And you just go, well, does that include that comment or it doesn't include the comment or what's going on? Let's revisit Dawkins's quote. If evolution's true and everything is only blind physical forces and genetic replication, what's the difference between getting hurt and not hurt? What's the difference between lucky and being unlucky? What, what's even justice? Like justice doesn't exist. It's, and this is one of the struggles is if you're serious about following evolution, that there's no God in the universe, you actually end up in a place where you don't have any free will because it's just genes, DNA, hormones, and just physical forces. Think about things being meaningless. What does that do to conflict? Do you actually want to live in a world where your conflict is meaningless? 
Do you want to live in a world when the person who did something bad that really, really hurt you, that all it is is just DNA? I'm sorry, man. You were just in the wrong place at the wrong time with a person, a man or a woman who just had the DNA and the genes and the wrong chemicals going through their head. You got beat up. I'm sorry. You got king hit and killed. My son got king hit and killed and it's just, it do, it's not meant to hurt. It's not lucky or unlucky. It's just what happened. It's just physical forces. That is a really difficult place in which to actually resolve conflict. You see, following on from evolution, we logically end up at nihilism, which says that everything is meaningless, including this statement, and your conflict. You're hurt and any attempt to resolve the conflict. Is that helpful? It's not helpful, is it? That doesn't help us at all. The bottom line is that there's not many nihilists. You know why? Because it's actually almost unlivable. You try living a week where there's no meaning and there's no purpose in anything. The most sensible thing at the end of that week would be probably to kill yourself. Because if there's no meaning and there's no purpose in anything, why live at all? It would be better not to live than to live and to suffer. In addition to, the, in addition to this, we've all got this problem of guilt, haven't we? This guy, James W. Sire, made this comment. In a universe where God is dead, people are not guilty of violating a moral law. They're only guilty of guilt. And that is very serious, for nothing can be done about it. If one had sinned, there might be atonement. If one had broken a law, the lawmaker might forgive the criminal. But if one is only guilty of guilt, there is no way to solve the very personal problem. And I'm telling you, I mean, I'm a registered counsellor and I hear very little talk these days about guilt. And what counsellors and psychologists generally believe about guilt, and this is a massive broad sweeping generalisation, so don't say, I know someone who doesn't say that, right? I'm just speaking generally. Is that guilt's a bad thing and we just need to find a way to get rid of it. You shouldn't feel guilty. So what do you do? I mean, I think everyone in the world, when they do things, when they do at least one or two things a week, probably thinks, I probably shouldn't have done that. I feel guilty about that. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have hurt that person. Well, what do you do with that? Well, in a nihilistic system, you don't need to do anything with it because it doesn't mean anything. In an evolutionary, naturalistic system, you don't need to do anything with it because it's genes and chemicals and DNA. All we've got to do is set up a structure and some laws in our society so that we don't all annihilate each other and so that we all go forward and the race survives. That's pretty much the only rule. And coming out of this, uh, you had some other worldviews that kind of developed out of this. One of those was existentialism. But where big time we've ended up is this one, relativism. Relativism is this. It's a, uh, a theory, especially in ethics or aesthetics, that conceptions of truth and moral values are not absolute but are relative to the persons or groups holding them. This is probably the dominant belief system in our culture. You just work out what's true for you, I'll work out what's true for me. What's true for you is not necessarily true for me. Every person has to... Oh, I've gotten ahead of myself. Every person has to define right and wrong for himself or herself. You see, from the Bible's point of view and from God's point of view, this is what human beings have been trying to angle for the whole way through since the first time that people disobeyed God is they wanted to be the lawmaker. They wanted to make the rules. And the only person who gets to uh, make the rules inside a closed system is the person that's outside the system, and that's God. 
But think about relativism and conflict. If what is true for you is not true for me, then how do we resolve conflict? So we have a disagreement. I think that you've hurt me. You don't think you've done anything wrong. We're at an impasse straight away. And we can't work it out. What if what is true for you hurts me? And we try to work it out and we can't because you don't have a problem with what happened and you do it again. How do you ask forgiveness and grant it when there's not even a standard? What does forgiveness even become when everyone gets to make their own rules? What does guilt mean? What, what does my sense of shame mean when I fail in front of people? What does that mean? What does it mean to forgive someone for doing something but by their definition they don't even think it was wrong? If you can just make up your own rules, why are we even hurt by other people? Why is that? Why does that happen? Why are we getting hurt if everyone can kind of make up their own rules? Well, I want to suggest to you today that there's a way better narrative than those three narratives. Here's a, uh, a quote from a guy called uh, Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew was probably one of the most uh, faithful and depended upon academic atheists in the world up until about 2004. In fact, in 2003, Anthony Flew signed the uh, Humanist Manifesto, which was basically an atheistic manifesto. But in 2004, he changed his mind. All right? And it actually hit the, uh, the Courier Mail, I think it was in The Age in Sydney. This was big news, right? Because he was the poster boy for all the atheists, right? He was the one all the atheists are going, look at this guy, he's our academic, he's the one that's proving it for us. 2004, he changes his mind, he thinks that God exists now, all right? Now, he's not saying he's a Christian, but he is saying that the evidence is clear that uh, a God must exist. And this is what he said in his book, uh, There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. What I think the DNA material has done is that it has shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. It's the enormous complexity of the number of elements and the enormous subtlety of the ways they work together. The meeting of these two parts at the right time by chance is simply minute. It's all a matter of the enormous complexity by which the results were achieved, which looked to me like the work of intelligence changed his mind. And here's what I want to put to you today. Let me put to you this narrative. The biblical narrative is all about conflict. The biblical narrative is all about a God who exists, who lovingly shaped and created the world. The biblical narrative is about a God who doesn't just sit up there making rules. He's not some kind of lawmaker that makes rules to frustrate people, but he makes rules because that's what he's like. So when he tells us not to lie, he tells us not to lie because he never lies. He wants us to be like him. And what you actually see biblically in the rules that you see or the laws that you see in the Bible is that they're a reflection of God's character. But what actually happened early in God's story of, uh, of, of his relationship with mankind is people turned against him. God created people and he created them loved. There actually is love. It's not just genes, DNA and chemicals. There actually is love and there actually is relationship. And the first conflict occurred in 
the Bible, the first conflict, in our view, occurred in human history when the two people that God made didn't want to do what he said anymore. When they wanted to become their own God, when they wanted to worship themselves. And so what does God do next? Because this is critical to understanding God's approach to conflict. What does he do? Does he just wash his hands of them? Does he just tell them, you lot are losers. Get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. Does it become a survival of the fittest thing where he decides he's going to beat them up? No, he doesn't. What he does is he kicks them out of the garden. And the reason he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden is because he wants to save them one day. And he says that right at the very beginning. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to personally sort out the conflict that exists between you and I. You see, they were filled with guilt and they were filled with shame and they were hiding from him. They were, as the Latin term curvitas in say says, they were curved in on themselves. They became self-obsessive. They weren't going to be able to get out of this thing on their own. And so he comes for them. You see, what we actually see, if you read the Bible, and uh, one of the classic things that happens often with people who uh, come to know Jesus is they start reading the Bible cover to cover, and man, does it get brutal, right? There is some nasty stuff, all right? You've got your first conflict that occurs vertically between Adam and Eve and God, and then it starts to spread to the horizontal. And what happens is you've got Cain and Abel, who are uh, Adam and Eve's sons, one of them decides to top the other one, right? Because he's really frustrated, frustrated with him, and frustrated that God's pleased with his offering. So we've got, ironically, maybe coincidentally, the same thing as news.com.au said today. We've got the first homicide. We've got the first conflict. In the first, um, inside the first six chapters of the Bible, we have the first conflict that's never going to be resolved while people are alive on the earth. And then you can go on and on and on. And some of you might think, well, I don't have any conflict God. Well, with God, well, this comes back to what I was saying before. You don't need to have a personal issue with God for there to be conflict between you and him. I'm telling you, you do have conflict. And you only, only have to keep reading through the Bible. You see this continual flow of people in conflict with each other and people in conflict with God. You've got Noah and the ark where God is in conflict with people because he says all the thoughts of people's hearts were only evil all the time. And then you have the Tower of Babel and then you have Abram and Lot and you've got Jeremiah who they kind of threw down a well because he was really irritating because he always said the truth but it wasn't nice truth. And so people were kind of fighting with Jeremiah. And then you get to Jesus and you only have to read probably one page or a two-page opening of one of the Gospels, and you see Jesus having fights with people. And we're not talking about punch-up fights, because Jesus was the one that got punched up to deal with the issues, but you see him interacting and having debates and arguments with people in the first century. See, the reality is that God's family is probably the most dysfunctional family that's ever existed, and it's filled with conflict. And he has a lot to say about conflict in the Bible. And the good thing about taking on this, uh, this grand narrative, the narrative that God's uh, ruling over his creation is not only that it's true, but it actually provides us with a really strong foundation in which to deal with conflict. Because all of a sudden we realise it doesn't come down to whether you think it's wrong or whether I think it's wrong. If he thinks it's wrong, it's wrong. And we've got a standard by which to judge it. We've got an objective standard. And then we get to the point after that where we realise, well, this is good because now it means that my hurt is really real. And some of you have been really badly hurt by people. 
And it would be the most insulting thing for you if someone came up and said, that was just genes and DNA. But God would say to you today, he'd say, that's true and that, that hurts. And it hurts because that's not the way that I made it to be. It's a corruption of the way that I made it to be. And I would hope that for some of you today, even if you don't know Jesus, that that would be something kind of like a soothing balm. You know, you're in this kind of fruit salad of people's ideas and moral standards and ethical behaviours or unethical behaviours. To have God say to you, listen, that, yeah, you were a victim there. And that hurt. I can, I can see it hurt because I felt it too. We're also in a place under God's mega story, his meta-narrative, that you know that, that guilt's really real too. You see, it's, it's actually real. The fact that you feel guilty, when you feel guilty, that is just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. And if you, if you ever go or if you've ever been to a counsellor or a psychologist that tells you you've just got to get rid of guilt, I'd say to you, don't listen to them. All right? Now, God calls himself the wonderful counsellor. All right? And he's got a mechanism. He's got a way for you to actually handle the guilt that you feel. You see, your problem, the conflict that you're in with God is far bigger than you ever thought. But the remedy is far better than you ever imagined. It just is. You see, your conflict troubles are not just horizontal. Your conflict troubles on the horizontal stem from the vertical. Jesus was very clear about the fact that if you love him, you love other people. And who here knows it's hard to love people sometimes? You see, so he comes down and he walks amongst us and he loves people that are really hard to love. And he says, I can help you to do that. You see, our guilt tells us that we really need forgiveness. You know what it also tells us? If we look at God's story, his story of conflict with his family, is that forgiveness works. It actually works. And forgiveness is this incredibly precious thing that's just been twisted by our, by our culture, and unfortunately it's been twisted in the church. There's a, uh, quite a famous author who's actually got a book, and the title of the book is Do Yourself a Favour and Forgive. And that probably is the line that our culture is pulling out most of the time, is if you don't forgive, you're hurting yourself the most, and so you need to love yourself and forgive people. Now, Jesus comes down and walks on the earth and he never says that. You know, <laughs> confession, saying sorry to people and asking forgiveness and getting forgiveness, you know what that is? That's like a fire extinguisher on conflict, is it not? And we're going to deal with this in the third, the third week. But it is, it's just a fire extinguisher on conflict. Tolstoy once said that uh, forgiveness is to absorb evil and prevent it from going any further. Forgiveness is not loving yourself so that you have a better life ultimately. Now, will it do that? Absolutely, it's going to do that. But if you forgive someone because you want to be happier, you just really loved yourself and you haven't loved the other person that much. 
Forgiveness is about absorbing evil. So what does God do? God comes down in Jesus and he absorbs evil. And he stops it. He stops it. You can almost, if you read the uh, scriptures toward the end of each of the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts about Jesus, when it talks, when the eyewitnesses write down what happened to Jesus on the cross, don't you? You almost hear a dull thud where finally there's a full stop at the end of evil and it stops. The rest of the time, I mean, if you come and hang out at my house and retribution's a pretty key value in our place, all right? Someone does something bad, you just go, right, oh, well, they need to cop it back, all right? My two sons, two of my sons this morning thought it was the coolest thing to smack each other, all right? I'm having fun with it. So it was a weirder sight. They're just standing there kind of smacking each other face to face. I'm just going, well... It was a joke for them, all right? But this is what happens to us, isn't it? Now, if you, bitterness and evil has a way of just spinning up and spinning up and we never ever pay back the same amount, do we? It's always just got a little bit of interest on top of it. I'm just, this is compound interest, this one, right? The other one was simple interest, all right? And you're just going to get a little bit more because you are really, really bad. Jesus understands. Jesus came down. Jesus was... And I don't mean to be irreverent, but Jesus was a divine fire extinguisher on conflict. And he walked headlong into it, didn't he? And he wasn't scared of it. And he ended up getting slaughtered by a mob of his own family members. Now, there's some families where people in the families have killed each other, but that's a pretty dysfunctional family. Is everyone happy with that? Like if the conflict gets to a point where you're going to kill someone, that's messy. All right? Jesus knows how you feel and Jesus knows how to handle the conflict and the trouble that you've got in front of you. So I want to finish this morning with five key truths about conflict and then we're done. First one's this. Conflict is not necessarily bad. See, there's a way to do conflict that pleases God. And as I've been saying, if you look at the Bible, pretty much cover to cover, there's conflict and war in it from the start to the end. And the interesting thing about it is the person who's the warrior who's dealing with the conflict is actually God. And sometimes he acts like Jesus, and that's probably the season that we're in at the moment, is God saying, Jesus is here and he's putting out conflict. He's dealing with conflict between you and I. But that season's going to come to an end. And if you've ever read Revelation, it gets pretty scary because there's a lot of fighting in Revelation. Because that's all the people that didn't want to deal with conflict and didn't want to access Jesus' provision for handling the conflict between them and God. And eventually what God's going to do is it's going to get messy. Right? And if you want to put it this way, and I don't mean this to be irreverent in any way, but it's going to be survival of the fittest, and the one who's the strongest is God, and he's going to be fair. It's not going to be about bullying, because he's a fair, just, righteous, good judge. If you don't take his offer, his loving offer to deal with the conflict before then, he'll deal with you as a judge, as a strong, powerful judge that you can't resist. But right now, at this point in time, you know what he's doing battle against mostly. He's, he's doing battles against darkness and sin and suffering. That's the thing that he's actually trying to bring resolution to. And he is bringing resolution to it all over the world. Number two, 
conflict is an opportunity. See, here's the thing. Maybe there's some cowboys here that love a bit of conflict. All right? Um, I remember talking to a, a good friend of mine a number of years ago, and he just said to me, he said, I love having a good argument. I'm just going, are you serious? <laughs> I guess a kind of bit more of a turtle kind of mentality. I'm just going, man, I'd be happy to run away from him, right? But he's going, yeah, bring it on. All right? But the truth is, when it's hurtful and when it's difficult, there's pretty much none of us that love being in the middle of an aggressive conflict situation. Mostly we want to avoid it. But you know what? God would say to us all today, he would say, conflict and trials and trouble, it's actually an opportunity for God to bring about growth in you that you desperately need. And growth in you that's only going to come under pressure. You get the most fit by going to the gym because what you're doing is you're putting your muscles and your body under pressure and you're testing it and you keep pushing it. If you sit at home like... Uh, Life be in it, Norm used to do. You just sit on the couch and just eat pizza and hamburgers and all that sort of stuff. You're going to get fat, lazy, and a bit useless, a bit weak. All right? You get out to the gym, you test your muscles out, you put them under pressure, and you get stronger. And this is the way that it works. James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4 says this Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Think about that. James is saying, when conflict comes your way, he's going, Woohoo! All right! Bring it. Not as a cowboy, but this is going to be good for me. All right? He's saying, don't just put up with it. Don't just stand it. He says, God's actually good and he loves you and he's going to bring about some change in you as you just go through this thing. So there should be a part of you that's just kind of going, this is actually going to be good. And God calls me to be happy about this because he's not leaving me on my own. I'm not on my own in this mess. He's going to actually work through it with me and he's going to help me to learn all the things I need to learn. I mean, who here knows? People who are able to love unlovely people, they're pretty nice people, aren't they? And I tell you, the only way you're going to get that is by going through hard things where it's hard to love people who aren't lovely. That's your gym. For you know that the testing of your faith, this is James 1, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's going to make you more perfect. That's probably not correct grammar, is it? You can't be more perfect. It's going to make you perfect. That's what James is saying. You go through trials, you go through hard things, you go through suffering, you go through conflict and you do it well and you do it with God and he's going to make you more you than you've ever been. All right? Because unrighteousness and sin and evil just kind of mangles us and disfigures us. And what God's all about is God's all about redemption. So he's taking the mangling and the disfigurement off us and we're becoming more and more and more who we were supposed to be. You see, James says that without trials we'll remain immature, incomplete, and lacking many godly character qualities. Conflict makes us more like God. Sorry, number three. The person you're in conflict with is there for a divine purpose. Now, this is hard. This is hard to swallow. But you know what? God's sovereign. He's in charge. He's loving and he's wise. And God sends people into our lives so that he might work in us in ways that can only happen in conflict. God didn't get up this morning and just thought, hey, what the heck is that person harassing my, my child for? He's, he's fully cognizant of all of it. He understands it all. 
He knows everything. He knows the future, the present and the past. And he's ordering everything that happens to you so it will be good. And what this does is this actually prevents us from demonising people that are causing us trouble. Because there's probably some people in some conflict situations here who are dealing with other people who truly are evil and sinning in malicious ways. And they're doing things that they shouldn't do. Now we need to be wise with the way that we handle that conflict and you'll hear more about that in the next couple of weeks. But the fact that God orders everything and he knows about it and that he's going to use it for good means that we don't need to demonise them. We don't need to start you know, hissing and spitting at them like they're, they're the devil and kind of trying to fight them off, all right? Now, we need to be wise about how we handle them. We're not going to be a doormat either because that wouldn't be loving them either. If, if someone's doing evil, terrible things and we just let them do whatever they want, that's not loving either. Number four, there'll be times when you'll reach an impasse in conflict. It's just the bottom line. Being realistic does not minimise your responsibility. All right? the, re- the realism side to it just says, look, there's going to be times where you're not going to be able to sort it out. But that doesn't mean that you just throw your hands up and you give up. In uh, Acts 15, verse 36 to 41, there's a situation with some of the church fathers, excuse me, where they disagreed over a guy called John Mark. And you know what? They couldn't come to an agreement. These are like the guys leading the church and they couldn't come to an, ag- an agreement. Now, they didn't end up in fisticuffs and take it outside and have a cage fight with it, right? But the truth is, they uh, came to some kind of agreement that recognised that there was an impasse there. And the bottom line is there's going to be limitations in your ability to reconcile with other people. But you know what? That shouldn't become an excuse to, stopping, to stop trying to resolve or reconcile the relationship. You know what that's a reminder of? One of the main things I think that's a reminder of is that we actually don't have any power to change the other person. And even more than that, we actually don't have the power to change ourselves that much. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. You can be really frustrated because you're... And some of you probably have even tried trying to manipulate and kind of uh, force the other person to do, to do a particular thing and they just won't do it. And then you just get more frustrated with it. And sometimes there's situations that have happened in your life where... Five years down the track, you just go, man, I was just so wrong. But I just couldn't see it. I couldn't see that I was the one. And I couldn't even bring myself to see what I needed to see. And I couldn't bring myself to change in the way I needed to change to bring resolution to the conflict. So when we can't resolve conflict, what that reminds us of is it reminds us of our limitations, that we can't change someone else. And you know what? It's really difficult for us to change sometimes too. And here's where we finish today. It's point five, and this is the point of this whole series that we're doing. You must get to the heart of conflict and look inside it. As I said earlier, we can teach you tricks and techniques, but this is not what we want to do in this series. Because if we teach you tricks and techniques, we just minimise conflict. We'll settle for solutions that don't actually last. We'll avoid the hard work of godly self-examination where God wants to see you grow. You see, when you do this, if you bypass the depth and the heart of conflict, you actually bypass the exact place probably where God wants you to grow the most at the moment. And so I'd just invite you to come back next week. We're going to do part two. All right? And we're going to look at 
Next week, we're going to look at this whole uh, mechanism that's been at work in our society where we've shifted from a society that used to talk about wanting things all the time and now we talk about needing things and we've just become a really, really angry society because we have to get what we need because it's survival or, or I don't survive, it's a survival thing. So I invite you to come back. All right? I hope that you've uh, got a little something out of today. Uh, the further we go, the more practical this is going to get. I might just uh, close in prayer. And we're done. God, it probably, uh, you'd be well within your rights to do it, but it, it, it probably would have been difficult for us, I think, if uh, you decided not to get involved in the conflict with us and you just kind of stayed in the dustless, perfect heaven and you sat up there like a drill sergeant kind of barking orders about what we needed to do to sort it out. But that's, that's not what you like. Uh, what you like is you're a shepherd who leads sheep, so he doesn't stand behind and hit them with sticks, he leads them out the front and shows them where to go. And There's so many metaphors through the Bible where it just talks about how uh, you, just, you just set the example. You just, you're a good king. You're a king who lays down your life for people. You're a friend who lays down your life for your friends. And you never ask us to do something that you're not already doing. And so I thank you so much. That means you've got so much to say about conflict. And God, we all need to learn about it. And God, I specifically just want to pray for all of us, Lord, that you give us eyes to see that conflict situations are something that you govern to bring about good. And God, I pray that maybe even for two or three people today that James chapter 1 might be true of them this week. That when the conflict and the trouble comes, the trials come, that they'd count it joy. That it would be a good opportunity and that they'd invite you to help them. Because you know all about it. So God, thanks for uh, teaching us about it and I pray that you just teach us more in the coming weeks. Amen.